from Rixie. This is Frameform. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Wednesday of Frameform. Claire, Jen, how are you all today? Hanging in there. Hanging in there. Just, uh, you know, getting over the, the Wednesday, I guess, going, getting over hump day, as, yeah, they, as they all say. You know, I do love that this is a weekly show because it's now become Frameform Day. So yeah, Frame pretty great day. Frameform like day. That. Every week, every Wednesday is Frameform Day. It's the holiday that is not in your calendar. Finally, something you can count on. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, today we have a show for y'all talking about dance television shows and I'm gonna just stop there before I go any deeper because I want to know what y'all are watching these days movies YouTube television what's what's going on in your queue I mean I think that you guys might be sick of me you know ranting about f1 at this point but there's one YouTube channel that I love called chain bear channel which basically is a channel that analyzes, I mean, different racing incidents and different uh, racing techniques. And there's kind of like a, they show like different diagrams of like how cars can like overtake each other. Because unlike a NASCAR, unlike an Indy car, like Formula One overtaking, where like one car like tries to drive past the other car is actually quite rare and quite specialized. And there is kind of like a sense of choreography to it. And so it's always interesting seeing um, those in-depth Claire, how did you get into something like a deep cut like this? Like, I that's fascinating. <laughs> well, my I mean, my dad's a Formula One fan and, you know, I actually grew up, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. to watch races in Europe. And he actually lived in Brazil for a few years in the 80s when Ayrton Senna was really huge. And for those of you who don't know, Ayrton oh, Senna is like considered a religious like, icon. Exactly. A deity, basically. <laughs> It's funny how Brazil tends to do that with their sports celebrities. <sighs> yeah, yeah. I'm saying that from experience in my own home. I was always like, what is this fanaticism? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, got into that. And, um, I mean, I haven't gotten ever into everything my dad's completely obsessive about. Like, he's the kind of person who will wake up at, like, 3 a.m. to watch, like, a skiing tournament sort of things. And I know he's listening to this because he listens to the show religiously. But so I just want to say, Dad, I love you and— Thank you for um, passing your obsessions on. And what an amazing child you've been <laughs> born and raised. So, <laughs> Jen, anything in your queue? You know, I think I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I think admitting it's the first step. I am addicted to YouTube for sure. Oh, I, I am too. play it all the time. I went through like a podcast phase and I'll listen to audiobooks more like when I'm driving because I can actually focus a little bit better and I'm not making as much noise, but I will passively listen to YouTube while I do so many different things. So just a lot of YouTube browsing. You know, I do like watching trailers for stuff coming out. I'm excited for West Side Story, obviously. Mm -hmm. This December, it was very much worth it to wait for the cinematic release and be able to see it in theaters. I'm so excited for that. And I think that kind of, you know, that's going to actually connect with a few of the things we're going to mention today where like you have people like us that are 
on the inside, lo- know that we love dance. We identify or like film and identify as, as this kind of person. But every once in a while, these things come across that just transcend culture at large and like become, you know, make this thing a household conversation. And yeah, I think that I'm forecasting that come December, even the months leading up to it, we're going to see a little bit of warming up to an excitement around this film because I do think it is going to be a really big deal. I mean, it's a film about racism. People are, you know, TikTok has billions of users every day. So people, their minds are very much on dance and movement. I think it's going to be a huge hit. And that's not even why I'm excited about it. But, you know, just ready, ready yourselves. I agree. YouTube, I think that's a thing. I think that's totally a household thing. Everyone watches something on there and I too sit and watch it in the background as I work on projects on After Effects where I don't really need to be paying attention to an edit, but I'm just doing something technical. Yeah. What's one of your favorite channels? Oh God. I'm not going to talk about what I binge watched today. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll I'll throw another one out there. The Take. I love The Take. They do video essays. Some of them are actually about like dance and musicals, including a really good one about why we need the movie movie musical or or something like that. But But Jed, I actually watched one of your recommendations from a while back, and I finally got around to it, watching it with my partner, which was The Accents series on oh yeah on va no on wired wired yeah. yeah that guy is so talented he just went into each part of the region like it was melting butter like and he just like shifts like a psycho really? it's like watching val kilmer in the saint it's so crazy how just seamlessly he was switching to accents and you could tell exactly where he was going and also just the all the linguists on there that were talking about like you know how um like the latino community how they say their l's differently and and even just showing physiologically how it happens Right. Just listening to it a few times just to understand how they do it. I, I mean, the production is really insanely fast. Yeah, it's very quick, especially when they have the guests come on. I felt like you can't win in a way because it was good that they had guests. They had like their representative to talk about like, you know, Hispanic dialects, but, and they had someone talk about the res accent, you know, but it was kind of like, are you. It's kind of like you still had this guy in the main and then, okay, thanks, bye. Anyways. Yeah, I I don't think I could see it any other way, though, because I was thinking about the rhythm of the edit when people were coming in and out, and I thought it would be too weird because all these people were, you know, zooming in to these kind of segments about what they, you know, are knowledgeable in. Yeah. It works. It works for web video, you know, and that's what YouTube does. Maybe we should link to this in the show notes so people can see. There's, It's a three-part video series on dialects in North America. It's fascinating. It's really cool. Mike really liked it a lot. The weirdest part for me was that in in North Carolina, 
there's an island where they actually have a very oh, yeah. Canadian yeah. accent. Yeah. Because he did the accent first. I was like, I know that sound. I've been he's there. He's not in the right part of the country yet. I would go there like a lot during the summer. And yeah, Ocracoke Island, you take a ferry to it and it's very small. But honestly, like, when I was younger, I didn't really notice that. And there is actually quite a few, uh, not maybe not quite a few, there's quite a number of Canadians that go down to the Outer Banks from Ontario and like just yeah. that eastern, eastern side of the region. Yeah. So it's not surprising when that came up. But yeah, it's definitely. You know, I think it's just all the pirates that were coming in and taking over the <laughs> island and all of that. Because the way he described it, it sounded like a pirate. Yeah, a bit of a British flair. Nice, nice. Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't want to, you know, drag this drag the segment too long. But the one dialect, or I guess the one like obscure language I'm always fascinated about is Texas German, which apparently like is was a dialect that originated originated from German immigrants in like the late 1800s. So apparently when present day German speakers go and listen to people in Texas speak German, they'd say, oh, well, this sounds like really old timey, like really old timey language. Or like a great restaurant, Texas German. Oh, yes. Well, with all that, let's move forward to our topic of today. As I've mentioned, we're talking about dance television shows. And I'm not just talking about dance moms that everyone is so eager about, but we're specifically looking at the social and the competition dance television shows. There's quite a number of them. You could probably count a couple on your hand, but we're going to talk about the positives, the negatives, the production, all that jazz. Yeah, it's interesting to see the trajectory of dance shows and sort of seeing the trajectory of competition shows and just how inundated nowadays that competition TV is. It almost seems like primetime is almost exclusively dedicated to that. And it's interesting to see. I mean, I guess for a casual watcher, if they're watching something and they need some a storyline to attach to or they need something to really latch onto for the span of an hour, then a competition TV show is a quick, quick way to do that or quick distraction. And that in some way that has positive implications as far as, you know, maybe this is maybe this is the first time or maybe the only time someone might be seeing dance, but also in that quick moment, it's going to give them a very limited, narrow impression of dance. So before we zoom in and hop aboard the hot tamale train to specific <laughs> shows, let's just talk about dance for TV in general. When have we seen it? I mean, this show, Frame Form, the idea of keeping it, it vague and saying, like, frame could be TV frame, cinema frame, body frame, which form is it? You know, keeping it open in the show, we've kind of already primed for the idea that we can have a serious intellectual conversation considering, like, what the meaning of dance on TV is and really looking at the influence that influence that it's had on culture, you know, as, as I was saying earlier about West Side Story, there's these times where something gets so big that it affects market trends. And I think that it was really difficult, but we did narrow down to a few shows we want to talk about today. But before we do that, 
Let's just talk in general about dance on TV. So Hannah and Claire, what has your experience been with seeing dance on TV or how do you think that dance on TV is something that's really significant that we need to consider? Well, my first experience seeing dance on TV actually came in the form of like PBS shows that featured dance and usually like PBS shows that featured these live performance captures of dance. And if we're looking at the history of how dance has been shown on TV, I I suppose a lot of the early history has to do with studio capture, either studio captures or captures of dance that were screened for general audiences who couldn't access these these forms in person. On that line, along those lines, like they're really capturing something in a very specific context, like it's in its stage context. And the second you take dance out of the stage, like you're taking it out of context. And while that could be enriching for a lot of viewers, you're also, you know, it also means a lot of viewers are watching something that wasn't fundamentally made for TV. So, I mean, I was, I religiously watched these shows because if there was any dance that showed up on TV when I was younger, it was usually in the form of these longer, like, these longer performance captures. And then 2005-ish came along. (laughs) Which we know has been like, it's the peak cultural year we've pretty much identified. Yes, mid-2000s came along. Um, Culture as a whole just got dumb. (laughs) And a show called So You Think You Can Dance appeared on TV. Now we're going to go deep into So You Think You Can Dance and all the bells and whistles and reverberations that it's it's caused. But Hannah, what was your what was your intro to watching dance on TV? Honestly, I have very negative emotions when it comes to stuff like this. I mean, watching dance on a screen as a child, I was watching, you know, VHSs and that were probably like, yeah, PBS performances. And that's where I like, you know, get inspired by watching The Nutcracker and Alvin Ailey and all of that really great content to have from your local library. But then, you know, after American Idol and having, you know, this, the revamp of a competition show, that's where it just kind of gave me a negative taste in my mouth with everything being so explicit and exploitive because the dancing was not what I was learning. And that's when just even being in a studio with competition dance involved in it gave me kind of like what I have a PTSD like feeling of just being judged and having to look a certain way and, you know, you're not going to be as good as those people. And that really took a toll mentally to me. And even though like we have these like really fancy lights and all these camera movements and all of that, it's just not my cup of tea at all. So preparing for this show was very tough, (laughs) I would say. Well, Hannah, thank you for being vulnerable with us to share that. And I want you to know you're not alone. I I share your feelings, you know, and I'm not going to say your exact feelings. I'm in your mind, you know, of yeah. course not. <laughs> but as someone that grew up in the same generation as you, and I think this is a version of what 
today's generation is going through with social media. Yeah, exactly. This had a social reality to it. This was media. You know, this was still, it was marketed, as you said, like the dance version of American Idol. And it had like the phone in votes and it did change the way that dance was choreographed and like, you know, the standards. And I understand what you're saying, that it it had like a formative impression on you because I think it did come out at that very strict, uh, that very formative time for us. And I think the important thing is that dance doesn't need to be competitive. And I think this is something that informs a lot of the work I do with youth in dance. Dance is a celebration over competition. Exactly. Even you can get feedback. You can go to a competition like event. I actually direct the guidance experience and you know, you can go perform, you can get professional feedback, you can get all the benefits of being on stage, but you don't have to be pinned against other people and have like photogenic contests and like, you know, all this other stuff that kind of comes with the hype culture and the pop culture. And so you think you can dance had a lot of like a massive impact on different parts of the dance industry. And even as young dancers in the studios, we we certainly felt that impact. Yeah, Jen, I just love that emphasis on dance as celebration and dance not in a competitive space. And the first show that we're going to talk about very much emphasizes that and really emphasizes how dance can reach audiences that might not otherwise reach and be a celebration for those who may not have a huge voice in society at the moment. And I think that a few shows exemplify that as well as Soul Train does. Cue the intro music. Just kidding. We can't use it. It sucks. <laughs> but you should totally go to the show notes and like just in deep dive and listen. We've actually linked to a 10 minute and a um, full length documentary on Soul Train. And uh, it's certainly worth a watch. Anyways, yes, Soul Train started in 1971 by Don Cornelius in Chicago. Something that's really significant to mention about this show is that it was really made for, by, and about Black people. And with the with the focused goal to show positive examples of Black culture when it came to dance and fashion and music. And it, it the, the original seed of the idea was Don Cornelius wanted to make a Black version of American Bandstand. So, you know, you even think back to I mean, the three of us weren't around then. So maybe think back to your real <laughs> life or if you're like us, think think back to stories such as Hairspray or what we see in Greece mm-hmm. and the youth engagement and Soul Train was like this in the 70s and it was disco. And it was a place where a lot of dancers got their sort of launch pad for their career and people learn their dance moves, much like we experience with television and now, you know, internet later. But just the the dance and the the focus on individual expression and freestyle here, I think there still is no show like this. And even TikTok doesn't emphasize much freestyle as much as remaking and replicating choreography. The thing about the show is that it very much is a platform for individual expression, but individual expression within a communal interest and communal support. And I think that the Soul Train line, which was such a feature of the show, really exemplifies that. And that some of you may have already may have unwittingly done this, maybe at a at a wedding or a bat mitzvah, you know, back when we had those in person. <laughs> but basically the line features, you know, two lines of people and people go down the line and and move and dance. And 
Well, there is a sense, I don't necessarily want to call it one-upmanship, but while there is a sense of like trying to like show show your movement and show what you can do, there really isn't a sense of competition or really a sense of supplanting, that it, it really is, you know, a, a feature within that really uplifts the group around you. They're selling an amazing party, not a tough competition. And that's where people want to go. With Soul Train, what's so wholesome about it is just how small and just kind of this cozy environment of people just doing their own thing and also getting to know the artists where they're able to have a conversation with them. And when we put that in contrast next to So You Think You Can Dance, it's so different. We are, it's just big and flashy and over the top where Soul Train really got down to getting to know one another in a space and getting to know people that you look up to in a space and be able to have a conversation with them without having, this is me, look at my hair, look at my outfit, you know, it's just kind of more of a family vibe, which is funny to say because a show like So You Think It Can Dance has to, you know, has like a family vibe as well, but in a totally different kind of sense where we're just there to watch than to be there as a whole, where that's what Soul Train was doing, was being a family in the production and watch it as a family outside of the production on your screen. Totally. And I think those are some of the main things we have to consider when we're looking at television specifically is like, how is it made? What's like the real story behind it? You know, and and especially like, I'm glad that we're not talking about reality TV shows here because that's just (laughs) like sorting through gossip columns and like hearsay. And it's just, I don't want to go down those rabbit holes. So I'm glad we're not talking about those kinds of dance shows. But with something like Soul Train, and especially we're not comparing it to So You Think, but we're talking about them both today. So I think two kind of big questions I have for you are, how has the tech changed over time? Like, how are they filmed differently based on when they were made? And what do they have in common? Like, what are those timeless things that they have that impacted people and I feel like I keep saying culture but that I feel like that's the word for it looking at this I always like to not make a Venn diagram but just you know look at everything and then figure out what is the common thread here and I have to say music is a big one because that's how you can reach the broad public is what you're hearing on your radio dial I mean both of them are bringing in not physically like Soul Train did where they had live performances, but, you know, they're using big artists that are famous in that time and using that music to dance to, to feature. I mean, I know there was some circumstances in So You Think You Can Dance, but also, again, this is like millennium, early 2000s, where they're featuring a a little bit more independent artists as well as like maybe music soundtracks from movies that have a specific song, you know, because we're also using contemporary dance instead of social dancing. But one thing that they don't have in common is just production value. You know, like I was saying earlier, it was very cozy. 
in Soul Train, and it was more about just the people. Those opening credits, though, Hannah. I mean, those opening credits, <laughs> my God, don't. That's, yes. a, that's a whole different story. I'm talking about what the live camera is doing. <laughs> Brilliant, yeah. The potato cam. But it's all about production when it comes to So You Think You Can Dance because that's what's going to sell a viewer. If it was just one camera, like a proscenium space, because technically they are in a proscenium space, that would be boring. And that's why I also don't like the show is because this is a, a performance that I'm meant to see in person, not to see it on like, at the time, a glass television screen, you know, like it doesn't translate the same at all. Well, and this is why I really wanted to talk about specifically so you think you could dance at some point on frame form it was like on my list and Hannah's like I don't want to and I was like but please like it is like it was a form of it was as close as dance was going to get to a popular sport you know like we had something that we could tune into that we could follow you could phone in and vote you know there was the competition element and I think that it did change the way that one mass audience has received dance. I I would be interested to see how many more students registered, not only registered for dance classes, but started taking more dance classes and doing more competitions and thinking like, oh, I want to do that when I'm older. You know, it did sort of change the dance industry very much like last season when we talked about music videos and how that changed the dance industry. So you think became this sort of rite of passage for a lot of dancers and this feather in the cap where even kids that were just graduating fresh out of high school that were very strong performers were then getting these huge teaching gigs and and making massive amounts of money with like this celebrity package, you know, versus a teacher package. And it really skewed even the way that payment was in the industry. So it's certainly a subject worth talking about. But it's not just dance as a platform that we watch on television there's the other aspects to it that really sold those viewers which is that reality that story segment the fabricated Mm -hmm. story (laughs) segments where you get to know these dancers and figure out what their journey is and what their background is and I get it people love that people love this like get to know someone behind the curtain situation But I mean, that's honestly what people really were drawn to. Oh, they went through this and that's why I'm going to vote for them right when I see that number come up. And that's the whole production part of it that really the producers knew what they were doing to sway those people to get make them money. Basically, those fees applied. (laughs) Definitely. And I mean, that was one of the, I mean, first of all, like, So You Think You Can Dance was one of those shows that, like, for the first time in my life, like, just random people, like, who I had no idea were at all involved with dance were now suddenly interested in dance. And the reason they cited Hannah was precisely that, that fabricated, you know, BTS process behind the scenes thing, which is, again, very skewed and, I mean, very constructed. And I mean, that little hat thing, like, I don't know if they did still do it, like where they, you know, okay, you pull it out of the hat and you get your genre. Like, I mean, there was only one card in that hat. Come on. (laughs) No. And I'm sure they like actually cast the dancers for what they were going to 
somewhat do better in slash what the choreographers wanted slash yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting about the show and uh, also going of Hannah, what you're mentioning about the producers was the fact that one of the producers was incredibly visible in it and really was kind of playing the role of the heel in a way. To the point, like, I remember back in the day, like, what, like reading a So You Think You Can Dance recap that was actually sanctioned by Fox. And this recap absolutely laying in to Nigel Lithgow and absolutely, like, providing, like, the absolute contrast of Nigel Lithgow. And this was sanctioned. And this was also a part of the way the show was constructed and the part of the way the show was marketed in that... It was setting up this thing of here are the good guys, here are the bad guys, here's that one judge that you want to throw tomatoes at. And that element was a huge part of the reception of the show. Well, and the the celebrity choreographers and then the first generation of competitors that came back as choreographers, the show kind of built out this whole network of celebrity and certainly had this reality show elements as well. Something that I was concerned about a couple summers ago was my husband and his tap company, The Jam Project, they were actually accepted to World of Dance season two. And I was so concerned that they were going to make up some crazy backstory or there was going to be some insane manipulation. And there were some changes to like choreography and adapting it for you know, from what the company would originally do to what actually went on TV and what the producers wanted. So I actually thought about asking him uh, to share on Frameform a little bit about that. So here he is, Mark Orsborne of The Jam Project, who's going to share a bit about like what that process was like changing the choreography from the idea you had and the, the piece you auditioned with to what we actually saw on TV. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to kind of talk with you for a couple minutes about my experience at World of Dance and my company's experience. I just want to say before I answer a couple of these questions that um, I've been listening to the podcast, and I think that uh, you all are doing a great job. You're covering a lot of really important topics, and um, I've really enjoyed listening to it. So, you know, kudos to all of you. I'm actually very curious to know this, and I'm not sure if you can gauge this yourself, but how familiar did you think the producers actually were with dance? Like, how how many of them do you think had actually been dancers? And if so, like, what kind of style do you think they had? Or do you think that they had absolutely no idea about it and just thought it was another thing to market? So something that made World of Dance a really unique show is that uh, World of Dance as a as an organization had already existed as a kind of worldwide, um, you know, dance organization, and so there was already that familiarity with dance going into the show that NBC had picked up. They worked it out with with J Lo. J Lo already had experience um, herself as a dancer, so there was already that familiarity. Derek Huff was also a judge. Uh, Derek, as you all know, um, is a dancer himself, you know, created a big name for himself on Dancing with the Stars. Um, Neo was also a judge. Neo, you know, I don't know what his, you know, professional training is. 
uh, if any, but I do know that, you know, he obviously has been around dance before and, and can dance, but, you know, he was certainly, you know, the one of the three judges that didn't necessarily know how to critique some of the dancing as well as, you know, Derek and, and, and JLo. We did have contributing choreographers that helped everybody on the show. Tabitha Napoleon, also known as Nappy Tabs, who had been in the industry for a really long time. In fact, they were, at the time that we were on the show, they were actually choreographers for JLo's tour. So they were working hand in hand with her, you know, so they were fantastic to work with. And what I really enjoyed about them was that they didn't ask us to stray too far away from what our normal choreography would be. It would just be a couple of moments where they say, okay, no, that, that step might be too fast or too intricate for people to really understand and, and make it really palatable. So, you know, they would slow it down. They would have us do something that's more movement driven. That was really good for the camera. It allowed us to make eye contact with the camera, et cetera. So, you know, there were, were certain moments that, that, that they did that with us. And I do think that when it comes to, you know, how it came across on television, it actually was very, very effective. It made it more exciting. Uh, there was a live audience there and, you know, it was such a, a, a nice experience to be able to to have people there watching and kind of cheering us on. So, Mark, I could tell from watching World of Dance, there's a lot of just hype culture in general with these routines. Now, with tap, a very classical form, was that an option that you guys wanted to take? was to put these kind of, you know, almost TikTok-esque ideas to your style of what the Jam Project does in tap form? And if not, like, why? <laughs> so that's a really good question, Hannah. And, you know, with tap dancers, there so many of us are uh, very driven by you know, the history of tap dance and, and just the purity of tap dance, you know, dancing with, you know, a live band and, and a lot of the roots of, of tap dance coming from, from jazz music and improvisation. And, you know, I knew that going into this show, um, there was going to be a lot of conversation around tap dance's place, you know, on that stage and for that, that quote unquote hype culture. I was really excited to have the opportunity for the Jam Project because it was a chance for people to see tap dance in a in a in a accessible way, and it was a really great opportunity to get people engaged with tap dance again, and you know just continue to you know take a step forward, no pun intended, in 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 the right direction, you know, in the future with tap dance. So we're all trying to do our part to make tap more accessible and, and, you know, get people to, to enjoy it and for it to be accepted in the same way that, you know, a hip hop or a contemporary, you know, would be in, in present day. So, so that was a really exciting opportunity. Now with regard to our approach, it, our approach is, is no different than we, than we were, you know, for, 
kind of our normal company, you know, um, choreography and, and performance, which is we, we already are a really high energy group and we use very popular, you know, music, but not necessarily like real, real poppy, but, you know, we are kind of more classically rock driven. And a lot of people say that we're, you know, your dad's favorite, you know, tap group. So, which is actually true in so many ways, but, um, but it was, you know, really good, you know, opportunity for us to take our style and put it on that, that stage and, and see how it was accepted by, uh, both the live audience and, and the audience at home. And I think that it actually went, you know, really, really well. It was well received. It was so nice to actually be acknowledged by, by Derek Huff specifically on, on season two's episode seven, I believe, uh, where he, you know, kind of, you know, took a second to introduce us and say, you know, Hey, these guys are some of the best in the industry and they're professionals at what they do, you know, and, you know, they mentioned the history, the judges do. And it, it, so it was nice that, that we were able to, you know, kind of maintain some of that, that integrity, but also be able to do our thing, you know, on that stage and, and in that kind of like quick hype, you know, type of format. So I think that uh, World of Dance actually did a really, really good job of allowing us to, you know, have have both. You know what I mean? So and and and, and approach it both ways. It was also great that the backstory wasn't false, like we've seen in some other dance reality shows. They almost exploit some life tragedy to try and get votes, and it was really just authentically you all and you all have been dancing together since you were little boys. So it was fun to see that manifest and on a really big stage for this great big audience. And thank you for joining us today to talk to our audience about your experience on world of dance. Thank you, Jen. And thank you, Hannah and Claire and the production staff and everybody with Frameform. Again, I think you guys are doing a great job and thank you so much for having me. Well, there you have it. So, you know, there's the behind the scenes that the producers want you to see, and then there's what actually happens. So perhaps not as juicy or scandalous as you might have thought, but good insight nonetheless. Thank you so much, darling, for joining us. So as we've talked very negatively about these kinds of shows, besides Soul Train, that have which we celebrated, that actually celebrates dance, I mean, what can we do as, you know, dancers in the film community or even just anybody worldwide who is involved in dance and maybe also TikTokers? How can we make, you know, change for better to show dance in this kind of format? If we had a perfect world, what would you want to see, basically? Well, I know something that was a challenge with So You Think You Can Dance in particular was the question of cultural appropriation. And I feel like if that show had come out now, it would be looked at with a lot more critical eyes. But then again, you had America's Next Top Model where they were doing insane photo shoots, including wearing blackface. Um, You know, so So You Think You Can Dance seems pretty not severe compared to, you know, what was going on in other spots on television. And we're looking at you, Jersey Shore. Um, anyways. Hey, there's something wrong with Jersey Shore here. <laughs> Hannah's like, can you <laughs> not 
come for my favorite show. So, and I, I think it's really difficult to, to say because at the same time, I'm happy that you got to see styles of dance like Bollywood, like on the show season after season and it was popular. You see it being danced by people that are not Indian, you know? So, but at the same time, I wonder if there might be some Indian folks that are like, oh my gosh, this is just so great to see Indian dance on like American popular television. Like so many people are going to take an interest and, and celebrate this now, but I'm sure there's, there's, you know, there's so many perspectives on this. So where do you think this show would be received now when it comes to those sorts of issues and what would be like the right way to approach it? I think it would have a microscope on it. I think that it would I mean, I think that any wrong move could have, you know, sent it into a series of, you know, statements and apologies. But what you were saying about, like, maybe this is a way of someone to have some res- representation in, like, in popular media. And for me, So You Think You Can Dance, like, was the only dance-related thing in popular media. And it was kind of at the point where I'm like, well, if this is what it's going to be, may as well accept it. And Nowadays, I feel that there is a trend or there's starting to be a much greater variety of dance-related media. I think we spoke about the series Move on Netflix that really uh, profiles artists and really goes in-depth into their different processes and their different backgrounds. And something like that that goes in-depth rather than you know reducing these dancers to um, to these figureheads or to these like characters like these characteristics, I think is a positive trend forward and will be a, a net positive for dance as a whole. I mean, dance is, is the oldest art form, I believe, you know, it doesn't require any external technology or any assistance. It's just the human body in motion. And, you know, it's it's come so far. And over time, the way that technology interacts with it affects the way that we receive it, affects the way that we make it, the way that we remember it. And hopefully by taking some time to talk about Soul Train and, you know, just scraping the surface of, you know, what that meant at the time and why that was such an important show. And then also looking at So You Think and some of the positives, but also some of the maybe negative effects. You know, I think it's definitely a worthwhile conversation that we should return to and look through the lens of other shows. Like we didn't even talk about, of course, like the dance reality shows, which honestly I don't want to talk about or the ballroom shows, or even like the hip hop shows, like America's Best Dance Crew. I do want to mention one more thing that is related to what you just said about your, this you know, dance developing with technology. I think that a huge part of the success of So You Think You Can Dance was the fact that mid-2000s, maybe right on the year, was the year YouTube. Yeah. Boom. Exactly. Yes. Many of these dances, even if people didn't catch them the first time, Many of them went viral. And I think as the show went on as and as other dance shows started to be established, they're going they're I mean, maybe they're originating on TV, but they're living on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Like World of Dance, like is tailor made for, you know, the casual YouTube surfer. And I think that in some like this really shaped dance content as we I mean, as we're seeing it right now, I mean, we're seeing we see TikTok, which is kind of the low end of that of that curve that has a quick expiration date though those go come and go real quickly and fall deep in an archive whereas youtube it will just kind of exist and live forward because of how easy searching is 
Right. But dancers are spending, especially with COVID, dancers are spending, they're investing so much of their time building their careers through these platforms. And I think we're at this kind of point of no return where there's not the same gatekeepers of media. You know, these shows, Soul Train, you had to like get there early to try and get on the show. So you think went from these quote unquote, open auditions to pretty much recruiting and casting the season, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting that we're now at this point of no return where people have seen so many examples. Consumers have such short attention spans, such high standards. It costs so much money to produce things to get to that level of consumer demand, but then also have it low enough for the price. And it's just it's unfortunate because it's almost like the quality of the work can get worse in that situation. And I think that, you know, the best work we're always going to see is going to be in those caverns of curated programs and, you know, not in the mass culture. I really don't think that whatever gets out there in the forefront is always the best stuff, but it's always worth seriously considering because if it's having that big of a cultural impact and affecting that many people, it's certainly something we need to take, you know, take very seriously. 100%. Well, we started with YouTube. We're ending with YouTube. (laughs) And YouTube, long live YouTube. (laughs) Keep the ball rolling and keep the internet alive by making greater change of lifting these individuals through their own platform. But with all that said, Jen, Claire, thank you for another day of Frameform Day. And thank you, Mark, for joining us as well. We have an announcement this week. Coming up, the Kinesthesia Film Festival from Independent Dance in London is hosting their screening in person this year. The event will take place on the weekend of July 17th and 18th at Middlesex University. For more information, see the link in the show notes. Tune in next week where I will be sitting down with Amari Carter and friends from the Motion Dance Collective. Um, I really look forward to hashing it out in this crossover episode with a little meeting of the Screen Dance Podcast Minds. So tune in. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team. Mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.